Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, our text this morning, first 17 verses of that chapter. As you're turning, I'll just remind you that anthem that we just heard the choir sing so well, those words were actually written by R.C. Sproul. Uh, You might remember back to 2017 when we hosted uh, Ligonier's concert where that song and a number of other songs were debuted. Uh, It's a great gift to us as a church that we get to hear the secret place periodically and be reminded of that wonderful event. It was a great joy to have it this morning. As we turn our attention to John chapter 5, this chapter really represents a bit of a transition. Chapters 2 to 4 are framed by Jesus going to Cana in Galilee. Chapter 2 begins with Jesus being in Cana of Galilee. That's the turning of the water into wine. Chapter 4 ends with Jesus returning to Cana in Galilee and the healing of the official son. Those are two signs, the first and the second sign, that reveal his glory. But here in chapter 5, you have another healing. But as we'll see next week in verse 18, this healing is going to set up conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And that conflict will really take us through chapters 6, 7, 8, really into 9 and 10 as well. So that by the time we get to John chapter 12, we will see the determination of the Pharisees to put Jesus to death. So this chapter really is important in the way John's gospel works. But, but it's also important because it shows us who Jesus is for us. Son of God, Messiah, yes, but he's the one who works so that you and I might rest that we might rest into the full meaning of what this day is all about, because this is the Christian Sabbath, Sunday is. And we are taught by observing this day of rest who Jesus is for us. He's the one who works so that we might rest, so that we might know true flourishing, true shalom, true wholeness, and true peace. In order to see all of that in our passage this morning, though, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come now asking you for the help of your Spirit. Indeed, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our hearts, open our ears and our eyes that we might hear and see and truly believe the glorious things that you have for us in this portion of Holy Scripture. As our confession of faith says, we want to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in and through Holy Scripture. And so, Spirit, come and declare your word to us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 5, and beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed 
and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, you know we live in a world of of ladders, What do I mean by ladders? Well, think about it. Uh, We live life thinking about climbing certain ladders. Those of you who are in the business world, you, you, you think about your career in terms of climbing the corporate ladder. Perhaps you started in your company in an entry-level job, or perhaps you recruited out of college for a particular place, but you don't want to simply stay there. You want to work your way up through your performance, through your working and your doing to, to climb the corporate ladder so that someday, perhaps you'll be a vice president or even president, CEO. You, you're, you're climbing the ladder. Or others of us, we, we're climbing the ladder, if you will, in terms of our schooling, whether it's in terms of our academic performance, climbing our class rank, or perhaps our athletic performance, we're we're trying to climb the ladder. Academically, we're trying to move from the middle of the class to perhaps uh, 25 or top 10 or top five, or even salutatorian or or valedictorian. Or or athletically, we want to move from being a two-star to a three-star to try to gain some more notice. And, And how does that all happen? What happens by our performance, by how we work and what we do. Still others of us in in the world, we we think in terms of climbing the ladder in terms of gaining market share. If we're fifth in the market, we want to be third. If we're third in the market, we want to be second or first. How does that happen? Well, through our performance, through our working, through our doing. But somehow we can, if we can just gain a greater portion of the, of the, of the market share, we, we might get to a place where, where we can rest. And yet we don't, do we? Whether we're climbing the corporate ladder, or whether we're trying to advance academically in a class, or whether we're trying to gain market share, we, we never can get to a place of just resting. Even when we're on vacation, we go to the beach or we go to the mountains and, and ostensibly we, we, we're trying to stop working by resting on vacation. How many of you check your phones? Check your email. You, you know, you have to deal, deal with some issue at work or, or you have to continue some plan that you've been working on that you can't really put on pause because you've gone to the beach. We're, we're afraid, aren't we? We're afraid if we, if we stop working stop performing, stop climbing the ladder, others will pass us by. Why do we do this? Why do we do this to ourselves? Well, we live in a world where we feel we have to prove ourselves. 
We have to prove our worth. We have to, if you will, justify our existence somehow. And the way to prove ourselves, the way to justify ourselves is by our working, by our performing. Ultimately, it's by, if you will, law-keeping. I mean, there's a sense in which that's the case. Because, of course, there's a standard that's judging us, how well we're performing. If we're climbing the ladder, we can actually, the corporate ladder, we can actually judge ourselves by some standard that we are either meeting or not meeting, whether it's our annual review or a six-month review or it's our promotions. There's some standard that we can use to judge ourselves. Or academically, it's, it's the teacher's grading or, or the, the talent evaluator's evaluation of us as we go through a recruiting process. Whatever it is, the law comes to bear on us and we have to justify ourselves by our performing, by our working, so that suddenly it becomes impossible to rest. It becomes impossible to be passive. We're fearful, we're, we're fearful that, that our peers will pass us by. Really, it's, it becomes quite dangerous to rely on anything outside of ourselves, whether it's other people, whether it's other processes. No, we want to control as much. If we're going to be judged by some law, by some standard, if our performance, our working, our climbing the ladder is going to be judged by something or someone else, we want to have as much control as possible. That's how our world works. But here's the thing. Though our world works that way, demanding that we justify ourselves in these ways, it doesn't work spiritually. It might work with the things that are below it doesn't work with the things that are above. In relationship to God, and in relationship to, our, in relationship to who we are, in relation to him, it doesn't work. That's what this passage is ultimately telling us, is that our working really doesn't get us to the place of resting, doesn't get us to the place of, of shalom, of well-being, of wholeness, of, of what we deeply desire. In fact, not only does it not get us there, it can't. We can't get there. We are utterly unable to work in such a way as to come to a place of rest. In many ways, we're like this, this invalid man that's described in the first part of our passage. that He's unable to work, and so as a result, he has to find rest in some other place. The passage opens with a kind of marker you see it in verse 1, John writes there, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That marker is actually telling you that John is, is not writing a chronological kind of account. Um, he's actually writing a, a theological account. John 20 verse 31 tells us these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. He tells you at the end of the book what his purpose is. Not a, not a chronological account, but a theological account. And so this, pass, this scene, this passage is put here in order to show us something about Jesus and ultimately to, to lead us to believe in him. And so this marker here is, is relatively indiscriminate in order to set us up. It doesn't tell us what feast of the Jews it is. It simply tells us that there was a feast of the Jews. Somehow, even though Jesus has just gone in the previous two chapters from Judea to Samaria, well, he's gone back to Judea. He's back in Jerusalem. And once Jesus is back in Jerusalem in this scene, John tells us more. Jesus has gone into the temple. 
In the temple, in the northeast corner, is a small gate that's called the Sheep Gate. Of course, it is for what purpose you might guess. The sheep come through that gate in order to be sacrificed as part of the, 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 the sacrifices the people are bringing. There's a pool there. That pool was probably there to wash the sheep to make sure they were clean and disease-free before they were sacrificed. But this pool had five columns, a colonnade that created shade both for the pool but also for people under the, under the covering. A number of invalids have, have taken up residency there in this shady spot. Verse 3 tells you that these invalids were blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus is here. He looks around, and he sees one of these invalids. We're not exactly sure what's wrong with this man. We can guess based on what he's going to say later on in this scene, but we are told in verse 5 that he's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, that's a long time. We're later told in verse 7 that he is a sick man. And so this man who is an invalid, who is sick, who's been in this condition for 38 years, Jesus comes and seeks him. It's different from the previous scene. Remember the previous scene at the end of chapter 4? The man, the official, comes from Capernaum 17 miles to Cana in order to seek Jesus, to ask Jesus to heal his son. That's not what's going on here. Here, Jesus actually seeks this man out. And what does he say to him? Well, he asks him, you see it in verse 6, do you want to be healed? That question, there's nothing particularly intrusive about the question. It's an honest question, demanding an honest answer. Jesus is trying to discover the man's heart. And the man's response in verse 7, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? You see it, verse 7? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. What's that about? Well, perhaps this is reflecting a, a, a legend that had developed a, about this pool near the Sheep Gate. Uh, the legend went that when the waters were stirred, how? By an angel? By some other spirit? We're not told. We're not sure. But when the waters are stirred, whoever can make it first into those stirred up waters might be healed from their malady. But this man's been there perhaps for a long time. Perhaps he's been there every day for 38 years. He's been laying there wishing that, that he could somehow get into those waters, that somehow he might actually be healed. But he is utterly unable to do, to perform, to do the work necessary for his own healing. Further, he doesn't have anyone to help him. He's utterly unable to deliver himself utterly unable to, to somehow make himself right and hold, wholly unutter, and utterly unable to justify himself, to make himself right. This is tragic. But of course, it, it pictures the tragedy of the human condition. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I are no better off than this invalid man when it comes to spiritual things. You and I are actually utterly unable to do the very things necessary for our deliverance. In, in our Reformation tradition, we, we, we talk about this under the idea that our wills, our deciders, if you will, are bound or, or held captive. As a result of sin, 
passed from generation to generation, from Adam and Eve to the next generation to the next generation, all the way down to you and me. Our our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's what Jeremiah tells us. Our, Our hearts lie to us and offer us disordered desires, and our wills are actually bound to always follow those disordered desires. We would never choose to do what's right, never choose to do what's good, ultimately for the sake of God and his goodness. We're always bound to follow our disordered desires, and so there's nothing we can do to break free. That doesn't mean that the various religions of the world, including various corrupted forms of Christianity, don't give us prescriptions of what we might do, how we might work, how we might perform in order to heal ourselves. But all of those prescriptions, they, they just don't work. If you just keep the Ten Commandments, they say, then, then you can be healed, then you can be right, then you can know rest, but, then you can know rest. But we know our own hearts, even as Christians, as those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we break the Ten Commandments every day. Well, if you just keep the the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor, then you can be healed. But but if we're honest this morning, we have to confess we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. No, there's countless times when we fail in that. Oh, if you just do the best you can, if you just do what lies within you, we're told, then you can be healed. But let's be honest, we we don't do the best that we can most of the time, especially in spiritual matters. We we satisfy ourselves with mediocrity at best. Don't you see? You and I, we're just like this paralyzed man. We are actually utterly unable to work, to perform, to to do anything to heal ourselves or, or to come to a place of rest, of wholeness. And when we come to this place, when we recognize how unable we actually are, What does Jesus do? Well, he speaks his word. And his word does it all. Did you see? Jesus said to him, verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And what happens? And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. This external word, not something we've ginned up inside ourselves, this external word, this word that's outside of ourselves, alien to us, spoken by Jesus himself, comes to us, and at once, we who are unable now are able to believe. We whose minds are darkened now see the light. We whose wills are bound and captive now have our wills turned to actually follow after Jesus. And how does that happen? Does it happen because we've performed Does it happen because we work or we do? No, it happens because we who are unable to to work, Jesus speaks the word and gives us rest. Jesus speaks his word external to us and gives us rest. The full meaning of this Sabbath day with its peace and shalom, with its wholeness and well-being, with its redemption, Jesus gives it freely because he speaks the word. But that's not all this passage tells us, is it? Certainly with this man who is unable to work, he, he gains the rest that Jesus gives him as Jesus speaks his word. But there are others here who are unable to rest in Jesus' word. And so what do they do? Well, they work. In verse 9, John gives us a, t- a detail that 
turns the momentum of this passage. He says, now that day was the Sabbath. This man had been in the temple area. Jesus told him, get up, take up your mat, walk. So he gets up at once, takes up his mat, and walks. And as he's leaving the temple area, he's confronted by the Jews. Right? Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. Now, we've briefly met the Jews before in John's gospel. In John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he's challenged about his action by the Jews. But now they, they're here again, and they confront this man. And look at what they say. Verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. What's going on here? Well, these Jews were likely Pharisees, among the strictest interpreters of the Old Testament law. And in Exodus 31, there God had warned his people not to profane the Sabbath by doing any work on that day. And so to ensure that they kept that law, the Pharisees in their teachings described 39 different ways in which work might be, be done on the Sabbath. And one of those ways included transporting, taking, carrying, any particular thing from one place to another. And so according to the tradition of the Jews, according to the teaching of the Pharisees, this man was clearly doing work on the Sabbath. But, but notice there's more here than, that's going on than a legalistic policing of morality. These Jewish leaders were so fixated on their own law-keeping that they completely missed the point. They're confronting this man about taking his mat and violating the Sabbath. This man's been healed. For 38 years, he's been sitting in the temple. 38 years, they've passed by to the sheep gate to get their sheep for their sacrifices. And he's standing before them completely healed. And they missed the point that Jesus had given him rest. And instead, they're saying, dude, what are you doing? Why are you carrying your mat? They've completely missed the point. Why? Why did they miss the point? Why weren't they rejoicing in what had happened? Well, because these Jews were unable to rest. They felt the deep need to do something, to perform, to work, so that they might establish their standing before God, so that in some way they might justify themselves. They, they, they feared that they would somehow fail to measure up. And so they were climbing this ladder called the law. The law said, don't profane the Sabbath day by doing work. But instead of resting from their working, what did they do? They turned the rest day into a form of work, didn't they? They had 39 different ways in which you might work. And so, so what they were doing every rest day, every Sabbath day, instead of actually resting, they were kind of going through their checklist. Did I do this? Nope. Check. Did I do this? Nope. Check. Did I do this? Nope. Check. They had turned the rest day into a, a day for climbing the ladder, into a day for performing, a day of working to justify themselves, to somehow prove the value of their own existence. Friends, we do this too. Instead of resting in who Jesus is for us, instead of resting in his word spoken to us, what do we do? We start climbing the ladder. 
We start working to prove that Jesus didn't make a mistake with us. We, we start working to prove uh, something, to, to gain some measure of our own standing with God. We start working to fly right, do better, keep our noses clean, to, to, so that we can walk into the big house of heaven and feel like we belong. Now, the, the, the formal name for that is moralism. But, but here's the thing with moralism. It actually waters down God's law into something we can do. Moralism is the way that we actually create a ladder for ourselves so that we might perform and justify ourselves in some way. And as Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly not what the law is for. There he said, unless your your righteousness exceeds that of the, the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in order to help us understand that we can't climb the ladder, Jesus reinterprets the law for us. We, we think, well, you know, at least I haven't murdered anyone. I've kept the law. I haven't murdered anyone. Jesus says to us, great. Have you been angry with anyone? Have you ever called someone an idiot or a moron or a fool or something worse? If so, you, you've broken the law. Or we think, well, I, I haven't killed any, excuse me, I haven't, I haven't committed adultery with anyone. And Jesus says, great, but, but have you looked at porn? Or have you been at a party and you've been talking to a, another man or another woman and you said, wow, I, wish, I wish I wasn't married to my spouse. I wish I was married to this person so that I, could, I might actually have a, a good life, might be intimate with this person, might be in relationship with them. If you, if you have, congratulations, you've broken the wall. Or you might say to yourself, wow, at least I'm not a liar. I'm an honest man. I keep my word. And Jesus says, great, but but have you really kept your word all the time? If so, why do you say, well, I swear this is the case? Or why do you say, to be honest with you? Don't you say those things because you know in your heart you're not completely truthful all the time? If so, you broke the law. I mean, don't you see, we fail, when we fail to rest completely in who God is for us in Jesus, we start working. We start trying to climb the ladder of the law we try to be moral people, flying right, doing better. We're utterly unable to rest, and so we get to work. But guess what? We don't just simply do that with ourselves. We actually then use our own working to judge one another. You know what a church is like when it's filled with people who are really moralists in the end, who are all trying to climb the ladder of the law? We become a place where we complain against one another, and we criticize one another, and we gossip and slander one another. Because what's inevitably going to happen is we're angry at the people who are ahead of us on the ladder, and we're mocking those who are behind us on the ladder. We're envious of those in front of us in the ladder, and when they slip up, we want to tell others all about it. And we, we're critical of those who are behind us on the ladder. Why can't they get their act together? Why, why can't they be like me as I climb the ladder? Right? We're just like these Jews. The reason why these Jews are policing this man and they've missed the point that Jesus has healed him and granted him rest is because they're on the ladder. They're trying to perform and they're assuming that this man needs to perform just like them. Friends, Jesus came to deliver us from all of this. He came to deliver us from all of this, from our own striving and performing and working. He, he is, in fact, the one who works so that we might rest. I mean, after some periods pass, Jesus tracks this man down. And what does he tell him? You see it in verse 14. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Why, why does Jesus say this to him? There's a lot of commentary ink that's been spilt over this verse. Most of it raising questions about whether Jesus was saying his previous debility, his pre previous illness, whether he was paralyzed or whatever it may be, was in fact the result of his own personal sinning. I actually think the explanation of this verse is much simpler. I think Jesus is warning him not to sin in the same way as the Pharisees, not to sin in the same way as the Jews. In other words, stop sinning or sin no more really means don't embrace the unbelief of the Jews. Don't embrace their ladder climbing, this belief that somehow you have to perform or work, which is really a, uh, it's a form of unbelief in who Jesus is. Don't, don't embrace that unbelief or something worse will happen. What's worse? God's judgment. The final judgment at the end of the age. See, that's what's really at stake for us here. We don't like to think about the end. We don't like to think about our dying day. For some of us, we, we don't like to think about our dying day because, honestly, we don't want to go through the process of dying. For others of us, we don't want to think about our dying day because we don't want to think about being separated from our loved ones and our friends. But still, others of us don't like to think about our dying day because we don't want to think about the coming judgment seat of Christ, that we will, in fact, stand in front of him and have to give an account. We want to put that out of mind. Or even worse, we simply propose some kind of generic universalism. Of course, Jesus will accept me. That's his job. But that's not what Jesus tells this man, is it? He, he says to him, beware unbelief so that nothing worse might happen. What's worse than being an invalid for 38 years? The final judgment. Judgment in eternity in hell. Lamenting and grieving and being tormented forever by sin and failure, by shame and guilt. That's what's worse. So let me say it again. That's what's at stake. Eternity is at stake. Life beyond this life. And so the question comes, how might we then know true life? How might we know shalom, wholeness, well-being? How might we know healing and flourishing? Well, Jesus tells us. And he tells us this is why he came. The passage closes in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, Genesis 2, 7 tells us that God created the Sabbath day. But here Jesus tells us that the, the God created the Sabbath day and rested from his work of creation. That doesn't mean that God stopped working. No, God was preserving the world and it has been preserving the world moment by moment ever since creation week. He continues to direct the affairs of human beings so that, so that all things happen in accordance with his will. This God who rested is the one who's working. And Jesus says, just as the Father is working, so I too am working. And we've already heard this in John's gospel, haven't we? In John chapter 4, verse 38, we heard Jesus say, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And what was Jesus' work? Perfect obedience, yes. But also an atoning death for our disobedience. That's part of Jesus' work. His perfect life, yes. But also resurrection life, eternal life in place of our dying and our death. So that when Jesus is on the cross 
having borne divine forsakenness, and having taken the cup of God's wrath and drunk it down to the very bottom, to the very dregs, what does Jesus say? It is finished. What's finished, Jesus? My work. My work is finished. Well, why did Jesus work? He worked through his perfect obedience, his perfect life, through his death, burial, resurrection. He worked so that you and I might rest. So that, so that you and I might rest upon him and we might rest in him. Our catechism teaches us that. Our catechism teaches us that saving faith is when we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. When we give up our own striving and our own performing and our own ladder climbing, and we simply rest upon him, we rely upon him for salvation. But not just rest upon him, rest in him. Rest easy, knowing that we don't have to climb the ladder. We, we don't have to do things in order to have standing with God. Rather, God the Father looks on the finished work of Jesus, his son, and he welcomes us as his own. So that on the last day, for those of us who are resting upon and resting in Jesus, we don't fear the judgment day. We don't, we don't fear that standing before Jesus. We don't fear the, the worse that the former invalid was worried, worried about. Rather, we look forward to the coming judgment day. We look forward to the eternal Sabbath day. Why? Why do we look forward to that final rest? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. How do we gain rest? We rest from our works. We rest from our performing. We rest from our striving, our ladder climbing, which we are utterly unable to perform anyway. And we rest upon Jesus we rest in him because we've come to know and believe that this Jesus is the one who worked so that we might rest and might rest well knowing there's a coming Sabbath day where we will know fullness of joy, wholeness, well-being, and shalom. Thanks be to God. That's good news. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for your great kindness that you've caused us to know the deep, deep love of Jesus, that you call us to give up our striving and our performing, our working, our ladder climbing, which doesn't do anything before you anyway, to give it all up and to rest ourselves in Jesus Christ, to rest ourselves in his love. Lord, grant us this grace, we pray. May the cross of Jesus be all that we cling to and the empty to all that we long for. May you be a true God and Savior for us, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.